0: Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Lewis Williams. And I'm Van Ostrom. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast dedicated to showcasing the work, insights and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. The podcast is generously brought to you by the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford and Lincoln College, Oxford.
1: Today we're going to be joined by Jen Semler, a graduate student at the University of Oxford. We'll be talking about Jen's research on AI and moral agency, how insights from medieval Icelandic literature can inform philosophical issues, and Jen's experiences in publishing and as a woman in philosophy. You can learn more about Jen's research on our website, jensemmler.com. You can read Jen's musings on our Twitter page at jensemler, or get in touch at jen.semler at philosophy.ox.ac.uk.
0: Jen Semler, welcome to The Philosopher's Nest.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: So your research asks under what conditions artificial intelligence, AI might be considered moral agents. What do you mean by moral agents?
2: So, when we think about members of the moral community, philosophers often talk about two categories. On one hand, there are moral patients, and moral patients are things that deserve moral consideration. So, if we're making a decision, moral patients are those people or things that we have to take into account in terms of the effects of our actions. Moral agents, on the other hand, are moral actors. So these are the people or things that we hold to moral standards and we allow to make moral decisions.
0: And when you're talking about AI in this context, what kind of AI are you talking about here? What what kind of AI could be a moral agent? Are we talking about humanoid robots? Are we talking about algorithms? Or, Or could it be any of that?
2: Yeah, it could be any of that. I think when we're looking at the question, could AI be a moral agent, I'm most interested in kind of the most advanced technologies we have at the moment and near future AI. But when we're asking more applied questions, such as what should the role of AI be in moral decision making, I think that opens up a broader range of machines and entities uh, that we could discuss.
1: Just to take it a step back, I suppose, you mentioned moral agency. What sorts of conditions? Or what sorts of things that philosophers thought moral agency could be composed of?
2: So we often take adult human beings as kind of the prime example of moral agents and maybe the only example of moral agents. And so we tend to think that a lot of things like free will and consciousness and sentience um, and the ability to make complex decisions are kind of all connected in a way that's relevant to moral agency and responsibility. But what my research is looking at is whether we can separate some of these components and ask whether a system that might have autonomy, some ability to make moral decisions and respond to moral reasons, give justifications for those decisions, but without things like sentience and consciousness, if those things could be moral agents of some type.
0: And could it maybe be the case that if there were some AI, let's say, who had some level of autonomy, maybe not quite as much as human beings, was able to make some you know, rational, maybe moral decisions, but not quite to the ability of human beings, could they maybe be you know, some kind of half moral agent? Or is there some threshold at which you become a moral agent and that's that?
2: Yeah, I think what I'm trying to explore is whether there might be different types of moral agents. But I think that within those types, especially when we're talking about these criteria for moral agency, there are always going to be entities that can instantiate those criteria to different degrees. And so I think in that sense, we might have things that can be partial moral agents of a certain type. And then of course, the questions that follow from that are what threshold do you have to reach to be considered a full moral agent of a certain type? And what does that imply for, you know, how we let you act in the world community?
0: If we're making a distinction then between different types of moral agents, so you've got human beings on the one hand and you seem to be suggesting that AI would be a different kind of moral agent. Is there a significant difference there?
2: Yeah, so I think that when we talk about biological entities, there are a whole host of things we talk about in relation to them and in relation to their agency. Things like punishment and blame and praise, And we talk about this in adult humans, but we also talk about things that might, as you mentioned before, exhibit kind of some of these features to a a degree. So we might talk about whether children's are moral agents, and even some people are looking at whether animals could be moral agents. But what I'm proposing is that maybe there's a separate type of moral agent that doesn't have any of these kind of inherently biological features but could have some of these capacities to a very high degree. And so I'm trying to figure out if there is a type of moral agent that is different from the type we might see in biological entities.
1: So assuming that we, you know, pin down exactly what it is uh, for artificial intelligence to qualify as a moral agent, let's say we end up treating them as the same kinds of moral agents that human beings are. Human beings make decisions that can morally affect people. Do you think, once we have a concept of moral agency that applies to artificial intelligence, that the sorts of ways we use AI in society, whether that's going to have some important implications for whether we hold algorithms responsible? Is that an idea that makes sense?
2: Yeah, and I think that's one of the key questions I'm interested in looking at more. I think that what this investigation might show is that agency and responsibility are very closely linked, especially when we think about humans. But when we think about AI, it's possible that we can tease these concepts apart. And so maybe certain AIs could be moral agents in the sense that we trust them to make certain moral decisions, but maybe they're not human-like moral agents because we wouldn't feel comfortable punishing them or holding them accountable in the same way that we hold humans accountable.
0: You made a distinction earlier between moral agency and moral patiency. Now, does it follow that if AI were a moral agent, that it would also be a moral patient, and that we have certain duties to treat it in certain ways?
2: I don't think so. I think the tendency is to assume that something has to be a moral patient in order to be a moral agent. But I'm trying to push back against that a little bit, and trying to ask whether there is a type of entity that could be a moral agent without being a moral patient. So my approach that I propose is that we should be looking at these two categories separately. And if it turns out that there's overlap in the criteria for moral patients and moral agents, then sure, you might have to be one to be the other. But I don't think we should assume that before we look at the criteria relevant to each category.
1: Do you have any thoughts for why AI might not count as a moral patient? You mentioned the distinction between them and how we shouldn't assume that, but do you have any particular ideas for why maybe it makes more sense to talk about them as a moral agent of some kind as opposed to a moral patient of some kind?
2: I think it depends on your theory of moral patiency. I think most prominent theories of moral patiency tend to focus on criteria involving sentience and consciousness and... That might be a relevant question to people who are thinking about far future AI and whether these capacities can be instantiated in machines. But what I'm looking at is whether it's possible for entities that don't have these attributes to be moral agents. And so I think that's kind of the, the value in being able to separate the two concepts.
1: Prior to coming to Oxford to do your Dfil in philosophy with Lewis and I, and prior to that doing the MPhil in philosophy with myself, you undertook a very different degree. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, so before doing those things, I was at the University of Iceland, or Háskóli Íslands, doing a master's in medieval Icelandic studies.
0: That's super interesting. Is that something that was relevant to philosophy or was that just another interest of yours entirely?
2: It was a separate interest that ended up being very closely connected with my philosophical interests at the time. So I really enjoyed reading medieval Icelandic literature, and fate features heavily in that literature, but there are also a lot of themes that seem to revolve around people making personal decisions, which seems a bit like a recipe for some form of compatibilism. And so when I was at the University of Iceland, I kind of explored this further and ended up writing about the contrast between free will and fate in one of the Icelandic sagas.
1: That's really interesting. So you were able to bring in your philosophical background into a topic or a kind of subject that's not typically philosophical. Do you think that kind of philosophers can do meaningful research in non-philosophical subjects?
2: I think so. I think one of the great things about philosophy is that it crops up in a lot of other fields as well, including literature, history, religion, etc. And so, in the context of medieval Iceland specifically, there's no manuscript evidence that people were talking about philosophy directly or about specific philosophers. But we do know that medieval Icelanders were traveling a lot. And we know some of them were going to school in continental Europe. And we know that Aristotle was pretty big in continental Europe at that time. And so I think there's a lot of interesting questions there about what inferences you can draw about the philosophical influences at the time, and even just what philosophy was being done in Iceland separate from the rest of Europe.
1: So I guess as a follow-up, do you think that the non-philosophical work you did has improved or changed the way you do philosophy itself?
2: I think it's broadened my approach a bit, but I'm not sure it's changed any of my direct methodology or my philosophical views.
1: So when you came to Oxford last year, you joined a cohort, I think, of about 24 students, only two of which were female. So do you think your experience as a woman in philosophy, in a field that happens to be quite dominated by men, do you think that's sort of changed the way that you view philosophy relative, let's say, to how a man would view his experiences in philosophy?
2: I think that being a woman in a field that is kind of historically and maybe still currently dominated by men is a unique challenge, and it's one that I'm still trying to learn to navigate.
0: Are there any kind of mechanisms that you found that, that help you navigate those issues?
2: So I think what I found most helpful especially since coming to Oxford, has been to try to find support and mentorship, not only from other women in the field, but also from men in the field who are committed to making the field more gender inclusive.
0: And for any listeners who are thinking maybe applying to graduate school, there's a really great resource out there. It's the Academic Placement Data and Analysis, and um, they publish statistics on lots of different graduate programs one of which is the amount of uh, female students in any given program. They also publish those kind of statistics for people of color and first-generation students as well. Uh, But for any students who find themselves attending a program that is unfortunately going to be um, particularly skewed in one respect, perhaps if it's a particularly male-dominated department, is there any advice that you would give those those students going into the program?
2: My advice would be don't be afraid to ask, people about their experiences in the department, and especially about the culture in the department. And I think the most useful resources are members of the current graduate cohort. Um, They can give you the most honest responses about what the department is like and what their advice would be to a prospective student.
0: When you did come to the department, Jen, uh, back in October, you uh, joined, already having two publications under your belt, both of which were in the topic of experimental philosophy. It's something that's, I think, quite a new, quite a trendy topic. Certainly, in my experience, it's not something I've ever been able to study as part of a formal course. So, really, what is experimental philosophy?
2: Experimental philosophy takes a lot of forms. I think when most people hear the term, they probably just think, Experimental philosophy is doing surveys where you ask a bunch of people about their philosophical views, and that can definitely be part of experimental philosophy. But especially now, there's a lot of overlap between experimental philosophy and moral psychology. Experimental philosophers do design experiments where they manipulate independent variables and measure dependent variables and run the statistics, and it's actually uh, pretty scientific as well.
1: So what sorts of insights do you think experimental philosophy can give us as opposed to, let's say, non-experimental philosophy?
2: I think experimental philosophy is helpful in answering questions about how people actually think. So for instance, now I'm doing some experimental work on causation, looking at how people make causal judgments and causal inferences. And in the past, I've done projects on the experimental philosophy around the principle ought implies can. And ought implies can is a moral principle that a lot of philosophers assume is a pretty strong conceptual entailment. And if it really is a conceptual entailment, you shouldn't get people who judge that somebody might have a moral obligation, but they're unable to fulfill it. And so, as it turns out, as experimental philosophy has shown, the relationship between ought and can is a little bit more nuanced than maybe we initially thought. It probably has something to do with the timing of the moral judgment or maybe the blameworthiness of the agent for being unable to perform an action. Um, And so I think the insights from experimental philosophy just help us have a better grasp of that principle.
0: To do experimental philosophy, I guess you're doing some kind of primary research, and that's something that philosophers aren't necessarily trained in, particularly if they have only really done philosophy in the past at uh, university level. So how did you go about getting into experimental philosophy?
2: Yeah, I mean, in large part, it was just a series of lucky coincidences. When I was doing my undergrad, I had a lot of friends in the sciences. And the thing to do when you're an undergrad in the sciences is to join a lab and do research. And at Duke, there just so happened to be this lab run by Walter at Armstrong called the Moral Attitudes and Decision-Making Lab. And I sent an email asking if I could join. I ended up working on a project with Paul Henney, who was a graduate student at the time. And he kind of took me under his wing, served as a mentor and later collaborator. And so I just kind of jumped on the projects he was doing. And that's kind of how I got into experimental philosophy.
1: So some of the work that you've published uh, in experimental philosophy that you've been, I think, a first co-author on was published in a journal in Philosophy Compass, which is a journal that I think only works commission only. So they invite people to publish for them. How did you manage to get them to invite you to submit that work?
2: Yeah, so as I mentioned, I was working with Paul, who has done experimental philosophy work in the past, and we were looking to write a review paper on all of the experimental work that had been done on Plies Can. So he kind of took charge on that. We started writing it. He made it known that we were writing it. And ultimately, the editor of the Philosophy Compass invited us to submit our paper to be published in that journal.
0: Have you got any uh, insights or any advice that you would give to graduate students or prospective graduate students on getting involved in the publication world?
2: I think I'm still trying to get advice about that and to learn how to navigate that world. And I think most people's answers will depend on how they view publication and how they view the professionalization of the field. So maybe it's naive of me to say, but I think my approach is to focus on writing a good paper So, you know, if you have an interesting idea, go for it, but focus on making that paper good and don't have producing a publication be your initial goal, I think. If your goal is to write a good paper, sharpen your idea. You're going to ask for feedback. You're going to be really patient and work meticulously at each draft. And I think doing all of those things will lead you to a point where the paper might be ready to be published.
0: Jen, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.